session, allow me to pray for us and ask for God's help as we look into his word. So let's pray. Father, we want to once again, once again in a new way tonight, say thank you for Jesus. It's only by your new mercies to us uh, today, this morning, uh, that is sustaining us right now. Father, we all come into this room from different places, uh, even different cities, different backgrounds, different life experiences, but we all come with one common reality, and that is that we are all sinners. And we all need a Savior. And his name is Jesus Christ. And Father, this evening as we look at Psalm 51, I pray that you would be at work in our hearts. Because the reality is we all come into this room tonight with, with new sins, with fresh sins. And we're going to live life tomorrow and we're going to sin more. And next week and next month and next year. And what you want to say to us, what you want to instruct us about from Psalm 51 is what, what do we do? What do we do when we as believers sin? And so, Father, I pray that you would help us to run from all the, the false idols that we run to, all the false ways we pursue atonement for our sin, all the things we do to pursue the removal of guilt that have no effect on the guilt of our sin. And instead, Father, help us to flee to you, the source of all mercy. You who have sent Jesus to die, Jesus who has paid it all, who took all the sins of his people on his shoulders, who victoriously rose from the grave and now sits at your right hand, interceding for us even now. Teach us to flee to you with confession and repentance and hope and in confidence of the truth of the gospel. So, Father, help us tonight by the power of your Spirit. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Allow me to read for us Psalm 51. To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. 
Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. O God of my salvation and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings, in whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Well, here in Psalm 51, we have one of the few psalms that give us us. Is it not on? I thought I turned it on. It's on. But the battery has popped out. Maybe that's the problem. Is it on now? There we go. All right. Well, here in Psalm 51, we have one of the few psalms that gives us the biblical context uh, in which it was written. Some of them we assume we kind of know uh, what the psalm was written about. Some tell us directly. And Psalm 51 is one of those. And you see there at the beginning, which we read, uh, this heading on the psalm itself tells us uh, why this psalm was written. It was David's response when Nathan the prophet came to him after he had gone in to Bathsheba. Which means one of the most beautiful, meaningful psalms we have in the Bible comes from one of the most grotesque, despicable acts of a saint in all of the Bible. Now, I know many of you are familiar with the account of David and Bathsheba, but I don't want to just assume that. And so I want to briefly recount for us what this psalm was written in response to. This uh, event happens, it's recorded for us in 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12. And just to summarize it briefly, David is king at the time, and he's up on the roof, and, and while he's up there, he sees a woman, Bathsheba, and he finds that he is attracted to her. And of course, he's the king, and a king gets whatever he wants. And so in his sinful desire, he asks for his men to go and take her. They kidnap, essentially, Bathsheba and bring her back to David. To put it bluntly, King David rapes Bathsheba. Later they find that Bathsheba is also pregnant with David's child, which creates a big problem for David because Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, is on the battlefield. He's nowhere near Bathsheba. And so David calls Uriah back so that he can come back and maybe cover up this indiscretion of David so that people would uh, assert fatherhood to Uriah, but the problem is Uriah being a righteous person, a stand-up soldier, says, I'm not going to sleep in the comfort of my home while my comrades, while my men are out on the battlefield fighting and suffering. And so he doesn't go into his house, and David gets desperate. He's left with, in his mind, no options. So he sends Uriah back onto the battlefield and gives them instructions to send Uriah essentially on a suicide mission where he'll have no hope of surviving 
in the battle, which they do, and as David wanted to happen, Uriah is struck down by the enemy. So after all this happens, after David has committed adultery, taken Bathsheba, has tried to cover that up, he's had Uriah killed by sending him into a dangerous, unwise part of the battlefield, then Nathan the prophet courageously comes to him. And he says to David, this is very brief of what all that Nathan said, but he comes to the end and concludes, and he says to David, You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. In other words, from Nathan's perspective, which is God's perspective, he doesn't care whose hand the sword was in. What David did was just as guilt-worthy as if he had had the sword in his own hand and had put it through Uriah's chest, right? That's what Nathan said. He says, you have killed Uriah. You have taken his wife and you've killed him, is what Nathan says to David. Nathan's essentially telling David that he is a a power-abusing, adulterous, murdering rapist. To which, in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 12, we only have six words of response from David. That's all we have in Samuel. And David simply says, I have sinned against the Lord. I have sinned against the Lord. In other words, through the confrontation of Nathan, David's eyes are open, and he sees the wickedness of his deeds, and he repents of his sin, confesses, and realizes that he has sinned against God. Which, by the way, this is somewhat of an aside, but I think it's an important aside. We need to let go of this concept that I hear often of, well, he's only sorry because he got caught. Have you heard that before? Maybe you've said it before. Was that not what happened to David? Nathan confronts him, right? He's caught, and he confesses. We need to give grace to people. Give them room to repent of their deeds, right? Getting caught can be a gift of God's mercy and grace towards someone. So we need to be careful with using that phrase, He's only sorry because he got caught, as if God can't use that to bring genuine repentance, genuine remorse, genuine confession before God, because that's precisely what happened for David. And when David's sin is revealed, when he is confronted, when Nathan comes to him, David's instinct is to say, I have sinned against the Lord, to which the details we have, you know, we have it more fleshed out, in Psalm 51, David's instinct was to turn to God for mercy when his guilt was revealed to him. So I want to ask a couple of questions of us tonight based on that reality. And the first one is this. What is your instinct when you feel burdened with guilt? What's the instinct of your heart? Maybe it's when you get caught. Maybe it's when you get called on the carpet by your friend or your spouse. Or maybe it's when God just works quietly inside your heart and you feel overwhelmed with guilt, what do you do? What's your first kind of act, just your instinctual reaction to guilt? 
It's a really important question to ask and to think about the ways we try to atone for our sin, the ways we try to just get the burden off our shoulders. I'm sure all of us do different things. Some of us just make excuses and blame other people, right? Because if it's their fault, I don't have to feel guilty, right? If it's their fault, it's not my problem. So maybe you blame somebody else to get rid of the feelings of guilt some of us start doing good deeds. We think we can just dampen our guilt by overcoming it with these feelings of goodwill if we just do enough good stuff and it just makes us feel better. And by the way, that can even be spiritual disciplines. Right? You can sin and then say, well, if I read my Bible for 30 minutes, maybe I won't feel guilty anymore. Or maybe if I just memorize a verse, I won't feel guilty anymore. Maybe if I read a chapter of this great Christian book everybody's talking about, I won't feel guilty anymore. Now, obviously, those are not bad things to do, but those actions in and of themselves are not what God has called us to do when we sin. Some of us wait for the sunrise, right? What I mean by that is we just think if we can just get to tomorrow, it's a fresh start, it's a new day, and yesterday's guilt doesn't matter the next day, right? So today's ruined, it's over, it's done with, but I'm going to wake up tomorrow and it's all better. Some of us do that with the next day. Some of us say, well, I'm going to get a fresh start to the week. Some of us do it with the beginning of a year, right? Well, last year was bad. I feel really bad about some of the stuff I did, but we're starting fresh, right? It's a, fle- it's a fresh slate next year. If it's, some, if it's a sin you feel guilty about that's between you and a, another believer, sometimes you just you get reconciled to that person and you just stop because you feel better because you're okay with them and that's enough for you. They're not mad at you anymore. You're not mad at them anymore. And so it's done with. And, and you feel like, well, there's no need to feel guilty anymore. Some of us hide it, of course. Some of us just overwhelm it, right? If we can just flood our minds with other things, if we can go home and turn on the TV and, and just flood it with something else so we don't have to think about it anymore or listen to uh, music to overcome it, or maybe some of you uh, that are younger play video games, just anything to take your mind off your guilt, just overwhelm it with anything you can do. For some of you, it's addiction to work, right? You stay at the office longer because you don't want to think about what you need to deal with in your heart. And the list goes on and on and on. People mope. They think that, that moping, God will say, okay, you feel bad enough now. Now I'll forgive you because you feel bad enough about what you did, right? Some, some people do physical harm to themselves. And you know what you do. So just think about what your gut reaction and what your initial response is when you feel burdened with guilt. And the reason I want to press us on that is because it's so important that we recognize that so that when we feel the desire to do that, we can stop. And we can say, no, I need to, I need to go to Psalm 51. Here's, here's a model for what we do when we feel burdened with guilt, when we sin. How do we respond? Psalm 51 gives us a model for that response. Now, that's easy to say, right? It's a lot harder to do because this isn't just a, you know, some five-step program for dealing with guilt. So what I want us to see in Psalm 51 and the questions I want us to ask is what, what about David's beliefs drove him to this response? 
What do we see in Psalm 51 that David believed that allowed him to come and to say the things he says and to, to deal with his sin the way he dealt with it? So what did David believe? And I want to ask that about three big picture categories, and we'll talk about specific things under each of them. What did David believe about sin? What did David believe about sin? What did David believe about God? And what did David believe about himself? What did he believe about sin? What did he believe about God? And what did David believe about himself? So first, what did David believe about sin? Well, first, David believed that sin deserves judgment from God. Right? Just look at verse 1. What does it say? Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgression. Right? The fact that David has to ask for mercy is David acknowledging that he deserves condemnation. Right? He deserves God's judgment to be on him. Therefore, he is going to God saying, God, please show me mercy. I don't deserve it, but please show me the mercy that I know you have abundantly. David's read the book of Moses. He knows what the, the penalty for sin is from Genesis 3, right? The, the wages of sin is death is the way the New Testament puts it. David knew that to be true. And so he comes to God pleading for mercy. Verse 11 also acknowledges this. What does he say? Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. He knows that the, the just consequences for sin is to be removed from the presence of God. And David is saying, please, God, please don't, don't remove me from your presence. David knows that his sin deserves the judgment of God. I mean, think about it for a moment. Think about David. He's the king of, at this time, one of the most powerful, if not the most powerful nation in his region. David has to answer to nobody. He can get away, essentially, with whatever he wants. But David knows there's a higher authority who will hold him accountable. He knows that God will judge him for his sin. And so he turns to God. This is just a basic belief that all of us have to embrace before we're ever going to confess anything to God. Because if you don't believe that your sin deserves God's judgment and God's condemnation, then, then you have no problem to deal with. So David believed that his, that his sin deserved the judgment of of God. Second, David believed that the objective guilt of sin does not fade with time. Look at verse 3. For I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. My transgression and my sin is ever before me. In other words, David is saying the guilt of my sin will remain on my shoulders. It is ever before me. And the reason I say that he believes the objective guilt of sin doesn't fade with time is because we want to distinguish between the objective guilt of sin and the subjective guilt of sin, right? A lot of us feel guilty when we sin, and it fades over time. We feel guilty, and we do some of those things we talked about, right? We wait for the next day, or we drown it out with television, or we do whatever we do, and we don't feel guilty anymore. But your feelings of guilt have nothing to do with your position of guilt. You are guilty before God, whether you feel it or not. 
That's what David's acknowledging here. My sin is ever before me. There's nothing I can do to remove it from myself. And the warning for us is that we can't allow ourselves to fall for this, this kind of thinking. We can't be fooled into this. Satan wants us to be fooled into this, right? If you don't feel guilty, you're not guilty. The whole world is held captive to that lie. And if you've ever even attempted to evangelize, as I'm sure most of you have, you know that to be the case. I don't feel guilty. And they don't have a problem if they don't know they're guilty. David believed that his sin stuck to him. It's ever before me. He's under God's judgment. He knows the objective guilt of his sin is not going to fade with time or with any kind of external actions. Third, David believed that his sin was primarily against God, right? So we already saw this in 2 Samuel 12. The only response we have of David in 2 Samuel 12 is, I have sinned against the Lord. And then David fleshes it out more here in Psalm 51 and verse 4. He says, Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Against you, you only have I sinned. Now, you know, that should cause us to stop and say, David, what are you talking about? Because clearly he sinned against Uriah. Clearly he sinned against Bathsheba. And the circle gets even bigger than that because I'm sure they both had families. I'm sure they both had friends around them. I mean, David's sin was bigger than just Uriah, bigger than just Bathsheba. Yet here, David says, I mean, for that matter, it was against his whole nation, right? And yet he says against you and you only, talking about God, have I sinned. So what, what does he what does David mean by this? Well, his point is not to exclude Uriah, Bathsheba, and those around them. David's point is not to say that he has not sinned against them. I think David's point is to respond to, to a mistake people would often make on the other side of things, to say that he only sinned against them. David's sin was more than against people. It was against God, and David wanted to make that crystal clear. His sin is against God. David wanted to make it clear that he was under no illusion that his sin did not reach beyond a couple of people. Nathan tells him in 1 Samuel 12 that he had scorned and despised the Lord. There's no category of sin that doesn't fall under this reality, right? We hear, we hear David's sins and we think about how awful and, and, and grotesque they were. All of our sins fall under this category. All of our sins are against God. All of them are despising God's word. All of them are scorning God. And David's point in the second half of verse 4, he says, Against you, you only have a sin and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. His point is, you are, you are just to condemn me for my sins because I sinned against you. David's confessing that, I sinned against you, therefore you are just to come down on me. You would be just to come down on me with judgment and with condemnation because my sin has been against you. And then fourth, David believes that sin is part of our nature, part of his nature, part of human nature. Look at verse 5. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother 
conceive me. So what David means by, by this is not that the act of, you know, anything that his mother did was sinful. His point is that he was born with a sin nature, just like all of us, right? We inherit the sin of Adam. We are, we are sinners all, is David's point here. Now, many people point to their sin nature as an excuse for their sin, right? And I, perhaps someone could read this and say, well, David's making excuses here, right? I was brought forth in sin. God, there's really nothing I could do about this. But that's not his point at all. His point is, I'm even more sinful than this one act. I have more sin on me than just what I did to Bathsheba, than just what I did to Uriah. I am a sinner through and through, is David's point here. His point is, this latest sin is but one manifestation of a bigger problem I have, which is I'm a sinner by nature, which means there's nothing I can do about my sin. It stains everything we try to do. So in summary, David believed that his sin was against God, that he deserved God's wrath, and that there was nothing he could do about it because it was ever before him, and that even he himself was stained with a sin nature and could do nothing to rid himself of it. In other words, David believed that his sin put him in a desperate and hopeless situation, if not for what he believed about God. So what did David believe about God that drove him to go to God with this kind of sin? Well, first, he believed that God is merciful. God is merciful. David asked God for mercy because he believed God would give it. What does verse 1 say? He says, have mercy on me, O God. Have mercy on me. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions David believed that God had abundant overflowing mercy to, to provide for him he believed it with all of his heart and so when his guilt rises up when he's convicted of sin he turns to God because he believed God to be a merciful forgiving long-suffering patient God but why why would why would David believe that I mean Think about it. Just to say it again, David was a power-abusing, adulterous, murdering, kidnapping rapist. Why would he ever think God could forgive him? I mean, if you were to go out and ask the average person on the street, and you were to say that about someone, and then say, do you think God would forgive that person? I think most average people would say he shouldn't forgive that person. Or what if Bathsheba was your daughter? Or what if Uriah was your son? How would you feel about this? Does this abusive king deserve mercy from God? And then in 2 Samuel twelve thirteen, Nathan confronts David. David says, I have sinned against the Lord. To which Nathan responds, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. So how, how would you feel if you were Bathsheba's mother, if you were Uriah's father, and you heard Nathan the prophet say, God's put away your sin, David? I think many of us would call it an outrage, right? 
that's an unjust judge. He's letting David off scot-free. This king abused his power, kidnapped a woman, took her back. She was married to someone else, had an affair with her, and then killed her husband. How can God just not do anything about that? Well, he doesn't not do anything about it. Paul tells us in Romans precisely what God does about it. But now the righteousness of God, this is Romans 3, 21 through 26, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. What Paul says to us in Romans 3 is that God passed over the sin of David. And then he took David's sin and every other sin he passed over and he poured it on the shoulders of Jesus on the cross. And he did it with those sins. He did it with our sins. And he's going to do it with every sin every believer will ever commit into the future. He poured them on the shoulders of Jesus. He's done the same for every single sinner who calls on him for mercy and places their faith in Jesus Christ. See, it's so easy to look at the bigness of our sin, right, which is what we're tempted to do. I mean, how much worse can it get than what David did? But David wasn't looking at the bigness of his sin. He was looking at the abundance of the mercy of God. That's what abundance means. And it was more than enough, right? More than enough to overwhelm the bigness of David's sin. And it's more than enough to overwhelm any sin you carry into this room tonight. It is abundant mercy. David believed that God had abundant mercy to offer. David also believed that only God can wash away our guilt. Look at verses 2, verse 7, and verse 10. David says in verse 2, Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Verse 7, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Verse 10, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Remember, David knew that he had a sin-stained being, right? He was stained with sin. He was sinner through and through. So for David to try and wash his sins away would be like taking a, right, a mud-soaked rag and trying to wash mud off of your body. You're just going to move dirt around, right? That was what David's saying about his sin. I, David's saying, I can't do anything to get rid of my sin. But God can wash my sin away. He can make me whiter than snow because he has pure hands. And he can come to me, and he can clean me, and he can remove my sin from me. It is by the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ that we can be made white as snow. He did what we could not do. And so it's Jesus' perfect life, Jesus' perfect obedience to the demands of God, to the law of God, that allows us to be whiter than snow. Now, another 
important aside here. God is merciful. God can wash away our objective guilt. He can wash away the feelings of our guilt. But that doesn't mean that there will not be consequences for your sin in life. In 2 Samuel 12, when David confronts him and, and, and Nathan says, look, God has put away your sin, David. You're not going to die. But Nathan goes on to say, that, uh, Nathan goes on to tell David, the sword's not going to be re- removed from your house. That one of your own children is going to betray you. That, that someone's going to take your wife from you and do what you did in private publicly. And this child that Bathsheba's going to have is going to die. Now, the temptation in our life is to say, if things aren't going well, if I'm struggling through the consequences of sin, God hasn't forgiven me. But what we need to hear from 2 Samuel 12, from Psalm 51, is that God can forgive you, can wash away your objective guilt, wash away your feelings of guilt, but you may have to carry the consequences for sin the rest of your life. It doesn't mean God loves you less. It doesn't mean you're forgiven any less. But it just means sin is serious. So let's not presume on God and say, just because I'm going to be forgiven, and you will be if you come to Jesus for mercy, for forgiveness. It doesn't mean there's not consequences but it does mean that we need to view forgiveness through the lens of eternity and that the consequences will have an end. They will have an end. And this life is but a vapor's breath. And let's set our gaze on eternity, right, where no consequences for all eternity while we're in the presence of God, in the presence of Jesus, worshiping them forever and ever. Also, God is more concerned with the heart. If you look at verses 16 and 17, David says, You will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. David's point here is, God, I would do whatever I need to do to be reconciled to you. And if I thought that doing this external action would do it, I would give it. But I know that these external actions is not what you're concerned about. He says God is concerned about the heart, and God wants a broken and contrite heart. And so that's what David comes to God with. Praise God that it doesn't depend on our external efforts, our external actions to achieve forgiveness or to earn forgiveness somehow. No, God gives it. All he wants is a broken and contrite heart, which just means a heart that recognizes that it's sinful and wrong and needs to be forgiven. And by the way, it's, it's not an accident that verse 17 says, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. When Nathan confronts David in 2 Samuel 12, he tells David, you have despised the word of the Lord. You, David, have despised. God will not despise you. That's a powerful picture of God's mercy to us. We can despise God. And if we come to him for mercy and forgiveness, he will not despise us. So to come to a place of true confession, you must believe that you are hopeless in your sin, that you deserve God's just condemnation, and that then will drive you to God if you believe that God has abundant mercy ready to pour out on you in the person of Jesus Christ, has cleansing power, and has invited all brokenhearted and contrite people to come to him. 
And just quickly here as we come to the end, what did David believe about himself? David believed that it was okay to desire joy and happiness. David believed that it was okay to desire joy and happiness. Look at verse 8. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. David wanted to be happy again, right? He wanted joy. He wanted gladness. Look at verse 12. Restore to me what? The joy of your salvation and uphold me with the willing spirit. One of David's motives for wanting to be reconciled to God was so that he could be happy again. Which means we as Christians need to be pursuing joy in Jesus. Because if you're not, you're not going to want it back because you never had it to start with. It's like 2 Peter 3, 7 gives instructions for husbands on how to treat their wives. And, and Peter says, do this so that your prayers will not be hindered. Well, if you don't care if your prayers are hindered or not, there's, there's no motivation, right, to treat your wife with respect. It assumes you want your prayers to be effective. And this assumes that you want to be joyful in God. And the desire for joy and happiness drives you to confession and to repentance before God. So a pursuit of joy in Christ sets you up for desiring confession and reconciliation with God. So don't neglect it or you won't run to him. And then the second and last thing that David believes about himself David wants to be effective for the glory of God. David wants to be effective for the glory of God. Look at verses 13 and 14. Verse 12, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Uphold me with a willing spirit. Why? Verse 13, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. I will teach transgressors your way and sinners will return to you to you. David's concerned that his sin is keeping him from being effective in pointing other people to God for forgiveness. How often do you think about the lost fruit and hindered effectiveness that you have in gospel ministry to the lost all around you because of unconfessed sin you're carrying around? That's what David says here. He's motivated by wanting to be effective for the sake of the gospel. He wants to point sinners to God for forgiveness and for mercy, just like we should want to point sinners to Jesus for forgiveness and for mercy. We should have such a passion for the lost around us that it drives us to immediate confession of sin, to be washed, to be made clean, to have our joy in God restored so that we can be effective evangelists for the glory of God. Now, let's be clear, just so there's no confusion, confusion, David's sins were not any more forgiven before Psalm 53 than they were after Psalm 53. Right? There's an objective reality of forgiveness that Christ accomplished for us on the cross that's done, is finished. Your confession, David's confession, adds nothing to it. So we don't earn God's forgiveness by confession. That's not what David's doing here. David's responding to the mercy God is already offering him, that God has provided for him. Jesus' finished work is not, is not complemented by our confession. No, our confession is an, is an acknowledgement of our need for Jesus. It reveals the fruit of the Spirit in our heart. God has commanded us to confess, and our confession of sin restores us to a position of joy in God and effectiveness 
for the sake of the gospel. So what you believe about sin, what you believe about God, and what you believe about your purpose affects what you do with your sin. And so if we're going to pursue regular confession of sin, we must believe that our sin deserves judgment. We must believe that our sin is primarily against God, that we are hopeless to do anything about our sin ourselves. We must believe God, that God has abundant mercy ready to pour out on us in the work of Jesus Christ, that He can wash away our sin, that there are no external actions that can commend us to Him, that He wants only a broken and contrite heart. And we must be about pursuing joy and effectiveness for the sake of the gospel to drive us to confession of sin for the glory of the name of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for the reality of the work of Jesus, for the reality of the gospel. Father, I pray that you would be at work in our hearts, that we would believe truth about sin, that we would run to you for mercy and for forgiveness because you are the only place that we will ever find it. And it's against you and you only that we have sinned, and so we come to you for forgiveness. Father, you would be just to strike us down, but in your mercy... In your patience, in your long-suffering, you have been kind to us in Jesus. And I pray that we would run to you for joy of salvation, that we would pursue our joy in you, and that in that we would be effective for the glory of your name to our friends, to our coworkers, to our families, to our neighbors, and to the nations. And that you would get glory for yourself in our confession of sin. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.